Talking History. This is News Talk. We shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender. And out of that silence came thousands of voices. The strategy of the white man has always been divide and conquer. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Argus Akoiza. Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, we're looking at Irish sporting lives, the men and women who achieved greatness across all sports and all eras. It's a new year and we'd love to hear your thoughts and views on what shows you'd like us to cover in the year ahead. Just send us an email, talkinghistory at newstalk.com. The history of Irish sporting lives includes serial winners and glorious losers, heroes and villains, trailblazing women, role models and rogues. It also includes audacious sporting founders, enduring legends and forgotten or overlooked greats. And a new book celebrates the diversity of Irish sporting history. It's called Irish Sporting Lives, published in paperback by the Royal Irish Academy, edited by Turlough O'Reardon and Terry Clavin. And to discuss some of the women and men included in the book, I'm delighted to introduce our panel of experts. Well, we are delighted, of course, to welcome the two editors of the volume. Turlo O'Reardon is an historian and the online and digital editor of the Dictionary of Irish Biography, and he's worked on the project for over two decades. Terry Clavin is an historian who's published over 400 biographies with the Dictionary of Irish Biography. And we are also delighted to be joined by Helena Byrne, who wrote on the soccer player Anne O'Brien uh, for the volume. Uh, she's the creator of Web Archives at the British Library, is a brilliant digital archivist and is deeply versed in the emerging history of women's soccer in Ireland. Well, you're all very welcome. And I should say at the beginning that this book is, an, I suppose, an offshoot of the Royal Irish Academy's Dictionary of Irish Biography project, a wonderful project that we've discussed on the show many times in the past, uh, bringing together the lives of Irish men and women over uh, many, many years and uh, uh, an incredible project that's now, of course, available online, open access, dib.ie. And Terry, I suppose we could start with, you know, the first rule of the Dictionary of Irish Biography, the first rule of DIB is you have to be dead to get into it. So, of course, this volume, it has 60 brilliant entries, but of course, there can't be entries on Sonia Sullivan, there can't be entries on Robbie Keane, because uh, thankfully, they are all still with us. Yes, indeed. Yeah, yeah, you have to be dead to be in the DIB and by implication in the Irish Sporting Lives volume. Um, So we don't have that many recent sporting people because I said thankfully they're all still with us so this is a more kind of look at the history of Irish sport and um, we have 60 lives in this volume and um, the earliest I would say go back to the earliest is the 1810s Dan Donnelly who's current in the 1810s and most of them there's only about three careers sports careers fall before the 1870s I would say because you know it's around then that you see organized sports properly organized sports and uh, then I suppose the numbers build from there in terms of sporting careers. There's probably a clustering between the 30s and the 60s. Then after that, as you pointed out, the numbers fall off again because they're all still alive. Um, I suppose I should say the second rule, of course, of the DIB is that as well as being dead, you have to be either born in Ireland or have an Irish career. So most of our 60 lives um, were born in Ireland. But there's a few, I think, that uh, were born abroad but come to Ireland and have a significant Irish career, um, most prominently Jack Charlton, of course. And in those cases, we focus on the Irish career to that, you know, we, we don't get into the rest of the life. So Jack Charlton, for example, I mean, has a very significant career as a footballer and manager in England. He wins a World Cup with England, but we're not interested in that at all. So we just focus on him, on his time, his very significant time as the manager of the Ireland soccer team. Brilliant. And uh, Turlo, I always think that there's a huge amount of, of fun selecting the final 60. Do you come up with a long list first and then is it like uh, one of these uh, X Factor reality programmes where uh, you and Terry are arguing over who gets in and you're having disagreements and this person has to be in or, or how easy is it to, to hit upon a final number? Well, we were blessed with the opportunity to sort of read over 500 lives that had a sporting component in the dictionary and then a few more came over our bows in recent years as uh, significant figures died. And that was part of the joy of the project from the beginning was 
we were aware of needing to represent the major sporting disciplines, the the different geographic uh, areas and the different uh, time periods. But absolutely, we, we've talked this to death for so long that we can almost sense exactly what the other will think about a certain life. But um, when we were picking, for instance, hurlers, you know, we, we, we could not include Christy Ring. So that raised the question, could you have Jack Lynch also? Or, you know, with the brilliant Kay Mills, the amazing Camogie player, that would sort of suggest that perhaps Peggy Hogg couldn't make it because we also included Molly Gill. Um, and rugby is something I'm very interested in. We we had Liam McCallaghan create a brilliant entry on Jack Kyle from the 1948 Grand Slam team. And that really meant that Carl Mullen or Des O'Brien, other, other greats from that team, just couldn't take another space uh, in the ship, so to speak. But yeah, it's been another joy to do this. It's kind of sports fans. Uh, you, you couldn't dream up a better task, you know. So, Terry, I've been involved with the project myself for many years, and it's a brilliant project. I actually, I wouldn't have guessed that there would have been 500. I, I would have thought a smaller number. Mm. So, so based on what Turlow is saying there, is there a sense that, okay, you could have filled it with Irish hurling lives. You could have filled it with, you know, maybe soccer or some other, but that you wanted to also make sure there was a balance there. You wanted to make sure that, you know, croquet is included, that tennis is included, golf, that uh, there's a good gender balance, that you wanted to make sure that there's a diversity there as well. Yeah, that was a key consideration that, you know, we kind of took, I suppose, a holistic view of the 60 and we wanted there to be diversity of various things. I said diversity of sports. So there is the main sports, soccer, rugby, GAA, uh, are very well represented, but we also have the more obscure sports like croquet, archery, well, horse racing is a pretty prominent sport, professional cycling and the like, and sports that are no longer popular. Uh, I mean, hunting was probably the most popular and glamorous sport in Ireland for a very long time, uh, but it's not so popular now. So we have two hunting entries, handball, we have a handballer. That sport has lost popularity. We wanted a diversity of chronology as well. So just diversity across time, but also within sports. So you get a sense of how the sport evolves over the 19th and 20th century, sometimes quite radically. And that's one thing about uh, this volume that a sport you think you're quite familiar with begins to seem somewhat alien and foreign when you look at it from about 100 years ago. We were very concerned about getting gender diversity as well, which is tricky because for a long time, Irish women were, you know, pretty actively discouraged from participating in sports. Uh, There was probably, um, up until relatively recently, there was a bit of a lack of research into women's sporting history as well. So we've had commissioned five new entries on sports women specifically for this volume, mainly thanks to research that's been done since the DIB was first published in 2009. There's been a lot of stuff published, I suppose, in sports history generally since 2009 or, you know, in the last 20 years and particularly on the history of women's sports. We tried to get a bit of variety in geographic origin. So there's a lot of counties are represented. The cities do quite well. Dublin and Belfast do well because sports developed there earlier. They had sports facilities there earlier. Maybe the west of Ireland loses out a little bit for those reasons. There's more diversity of sports in the cities. We, we sought to get a balance between team and individual sports. And within team sports as well, we try to have uh, a diversity of positions. There's a tendency for the attacking players, to, you know, the players that score, the flared players to hog the glory. So we tried to have a few defensive players we wanted one goalie, Tarlow, didn't we? We said yeah. we're going to have one goalie in it as well. A very important constituency there. And even though we didn't really try to achieve this, we kind of ended up with a very good social spread as well. But I think there is a good mix and there's a good political mix as well, I think, that there are, you know, there's a great political divide in Ireland between Catholic, you know, nationalist and unionist or imperialist, if you want to say like that. And again, uh, there's a good spread of people on different sides of that divide. I said, you know, this is a show about the men and women who achieved greatness across all sports. But that's not really true because you you weren't just interested in greatness. You were also interested in some colourful figures, people who had interesting stories. Uh, one person who, who was a tennis champion who became a, a convicted murderer, Veer Gould, that, uh, that sometimes it's, it's not the greatness in sport that gets them into it, but uh, a kind of, a, there's, a, there's a human interest dimension. Absolutely. And, and, and that's what... These are really lives and they're sporting lives in the widest sense. It isn't about the number of titles or medals or achievements, although we have the you know truly great sports people across the board. As you touch on there, Veer Gould is just a fascinating life and we couldn't could not include him. Um, based on really interesting research done more recently and also in the past by Tom Higgins, the sort of Diane of Irish tennis history. But also there's some really interesting lives to me anyway, like Teresa Mullen, um, the Paralympian who, who competed in the most amazing circumstances to win a gold medal in 1988. And then you also have the diaspora, I think, is really really well represented and again it's showing the journeys that Irish people went on 
for the obvious reasons of emigration, uh, to mostly to the Anglophone world. And that brings up great lives like uh, Dave Gallagher, one of the, the most important all-black captains ever, captained the, what was called the Originals, uh, who toured Britain and Ireland and, and also played in France and America in 1905-06, really founding the all-black legend. Uh, another fascinating life is Tom Horan, who left Cork in the 1850s, I believe, and went on to captain Australia at cricket, but also was at the uh, was playing in the famous game that founded the Ashes competition between Britain and Australia. So it's it's as much for the lives around sport, be it journalism or business or our founders as well. We have Michael Kuzik, obviously, who is a sports person who, who becomes interested in sport and then goes on to set up or contribute hugely to the establishment of the GAA. But two key lives and going back to what you said about selection, I've been very interested in the sort of the associational side for a number of years, writing up uh, Henry Dunlop and John Fortune Lawrence. And they're very much representing what Terry talked about, the imperialist sort of late Victorian experience of middle class sport in Dublin around the founding of Lansdowne Road and other clubs and venues that we now know as the the infrastructure of sport in Ireland. Some of the most interesting lives to me uh, are the women. The avenues for women to participate in society, let alone sport, were very limited right up until the early part of the 20th century. Therefore, our archer, uh, Beatrice Hill Lowe, the first Irish woman to win an Olympic medal, or Mabel Cahill, who had excelled at tennis, or Nina Coote, who was a fine croquet player, they all emanated from the, the gentry and aristocracy, where later on that changes, as we'll hear more later about uh, Anne O'Brien's amazing career, you know, one of the greatest soccer players in the world. And, you know, there's correlations there with the railways in Inchicore, where Kay Mills and Anne O'Brien come, the railways going past Lansdowne Road, leading to that stadium being put there. So, we're looking at this world through the lies, but there's an awful lot going on in the round. Helena, let's talk to you about Anne O'Brien because you wrote that brilliant entry, Honour, and I feel ashamed not to have known about her. She only died in 2016. You know, given that uh, last year there was such excitement with the women's team uh, qualifying in October for uh, the World Cup, and uh, given that, as Turlo said, she was one of these, you know, world-class players, uh, the fact that she isn't better known... Can you tell us about Anne O'Brien? Yes, projects like this, Sporting Irish Lives, really help to kind of highlight some of the key players that help pave the way for the recent Irish qualification for their first major tournament, the World Cup. There's so many key players like Anne O'Brien who have, you know, paved the way for these players because they had to, it was a really hard slog to play football in the first place, to get a team, and then to uh, make a success of that. So with Anne, um, she was very brave. She decided that she wanted to have a career in football. And to do that, she couldn't do that in Ireland. So she had to move abroad. She was very lucky that the opportunity came about when the French team Stade de Reims did a tour of Ireland and they played a number of matches. And really, these matches were selections rather than teams. So when they played Dundalk, it was a Dundalk selection, not the normal everyday Dundalk ladies that played in the league. So a lot of the players got to play more than one match against Stade de Reims. And they also had a, an Irish selection match and a Dublin selection match as well. So she played a number of times against Stade Reims and they were really impressed by her style. And then they even asked her in Limerick to play on their team when I think they were down a player. So she got offered a contract and she said yes, she jumped on it. Um, but it took a couple of months because she was only 17 at the time. So she waited until she was 18 to move over. So she moved over in January 1974. But it was just a really great opportunity in Ireland, we never had a ban on playing professional football, but in France, they did. It was an amateur sport, classified as amateur, so under the French Football Federation, they couldn't be professional. So she actually went over on a contract to work in a factory and then was given time off then to play football and to go on tours with the team. And Helena, can we talk about what type of footballer she was? Because you mentioned that her style impressed them. She seems to have been, you know, somewhat small in stature. And she started off as a as a forward, moved into midfield, I think, when she went to France. Uh, but wasn't a prolific scorer. She seems to have been a, a creator, someone who was able to play between the lines of midfield and attack. Yeah, definitely. And she was very athletic. So she also wasn't, you know, growing up uh, competing in a lot of athletic uh, events as well. So that kind of helped to get what she had. Uh, she was very fit and uh, and had the skill on the ball. And she was a very good uh, team builder as well. So she got on really well with her team and was able to uh, read the game really well and see where the strengths were to where play. And the same then when she moved to Italy, you know, she became a mentor then for some of the great players there. And especially then other Irish players that started to slowly move over towards Italy. Gronia Cross was the first 
the next player from um, Ireland to move over, um, and that was until the 80s. So, um, you know, she was really good at um, not just reading the game, but also building the team spirit and able to um, attack the ball really well. Yeah, let's talk about her Italian career because, as you say, I think Italian football was considered the the Italian league was considered the best for women, and it was the it was world renowned. And uh, she she was signed for Lazio. She played for many clubs over her time. I think ended up in in with Milan. You know, it, it was a very impressive illustrious career in Italy. Yeah, so in Italy, um, it was the leagues were well funded, so there was private companies that had sponsored the clubs and 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 well funded so they the players were able to, it was more of a professional setup than it was in France so the players were paid uh, by the clubs and their accommodation and uh, expenses were covered as well so it was mostly kind of on a semi-professional uh, basis uh, sometimes full-time but so later in her career then she started to diversify her income by uh, getting coaching badges as well and uh, coaching football in Italy and the leagues were really strong so that's why you do get a trickle of other Irish players following Anne out to play football in Italy. So after Anne, you had um, Grania Cross had a sh- from Limerick, had a short spell out there, and then followed by Curran. And Stephanie Roach also had a short spell out there, and, and Quinn. And then just recently, uh, Nee Farley has moved out to uh, Italy as well. She's just started her career out there. But with the recession in 2008, it hit across Europe. It really hit Italy bad, and it also hit affected women's football really badly as well. So then the opportunities for coaching football, they weren't as available as they had been before. And now it's just slowly starting to pick up, but uh, it's still not as strong as it was back in the heyday. It really was the place to be in Europe. Whereas now you've got teams like Barcelona or uh, Lyon and they're kind of the big clubs in Europe at the moment. She also played for her country, for Ireland, and uh, I think her final international cap came in 1990. What, how did her international career go? And again, talking about the playing style, you know, uh, I think she, you were saying she took all the free kicks, the penalties, the corners, that she was the kind of the creative hub for the team she played with. Yeah, so she was really great. But the problem was in Ireland is that it wasn't very well funded. So a lot of the players, especially for their first match, uh, they all paid their own way to go. The first international match was against Wales in May 1973. And all the players paid their own way. Subsequent matches, players fundraised or they got some funding, but they had to still pay out of their pocket to play for their country. So... um, when you moved abroad, that made it a lot more expensive and a lot more difficult to play for your country. That was one of her biggest regrets was that she didn't get to play more times for her country. So she's worn the Irish jersey four times, but only three of them are recognised as official internationals because one of those times was against Stad Reims, so it was a club side. You know, the last one she got called up, she was brought over from Italy to play in that match because it was a crucial UEFA European Cup qualifier. But Unfortunately, she wasn't brought over many more times because just due to the expense of it. So that kind of really put an end to her playing career. And it's the same for a lot of other women who did play for Ireland in the early 70s, who then maybe emigrated even to the UK for work purposes. And they never got another call up for Ireland again because it was so expensive to compete at international level and they didn't have the resources to bring players back. And she went into coaching then afterwards. Yeah, and she even had a spell with the Italian um, Federation as well. Uh, coaching there she actually came back to Ireland for a bit as well she tried when she retired from football before she went into coaching in Italy she uh, did try to come back to Ireland and had a job for a short time but it's just she missed Italy and Italy really was her home so she went back and she went back into coaching there and and that's where she ended her day and when we talked about her we, we described her as world class is that how she would have been viewed by people who knew the game and who had seen her in action would she have been considered one of the greatest players uh, of her time yeah definitely so Carolina Maracci one of the great Italian footballers uh, she really looked up to Anne and was a mentor for her and she really uh, described her as being world class as well and Helena, final question then on her, because I know later we can talk about some of the connections between Ireland and uh, and some of these clubs, and you know some of the research that you've that you've been inspired to go on and do. But I wonder, was there a sense of disappointment for people like Anne O'Brien that they were excelling at the highest level, and then there just wasn't that interest or awareness uh, as there was for the men's game? Definitely, and it's something that I've um, I've been spoken to a lot of. Uh, past players from the 70s and um, the the trailblazers for today's team. And now they're being recognised. 
but for some people it's a little bit too late because a lot of the people that were involved and to help pushing forward women's football, they're not with us anymore. So people like Anna Bryan and um, some of the key administrators in Ireland, like Kevin and Nan Gaynor, uh, you know, they're not with us anymore. And so they can't witness, you know, what their commitment did back in the 60s and 70s, the fruits of that labour now. So for Kevin and Nan Gaynor, they were the managers of Dundalk Ladies and they were formed in 1968. And they were also founding members of the Women's Football Association in London. And 2022, England went on to win the European, um, UEFA European Cup. So, you know, it would have been amazing for them to see how they helped to, like, overcome the ban, the FA ban on women's football in England and, uh, and then to, to go on and win the title. But uh, they've sadly passed away a long time ago as well. That's what some of the players, um, they're happy to see it now and get that recognition now. But they're also wish that they could share that with some of the other people who really helped pave the way for today's success. OK, well, we are tonight talking about our sporting lives. We're going to take a quick break now. When we come back, we'll be talking about the evolution of sport and different sporting codes, nationalism and sport, and also some of the tensions between amateurism and professionalism. That's all coming up right after this. Well, welcome back to Talking History as we look at Irish men and women who achieved greatness or indeed different kinds of fame over the different centuries. It's all inspired by a brilliant new book published by the Royal Irish Academy, taken from the files and the articles of the Dictionary of Irish Biography and edited by Turlough O'Reardon and Terry Clavin. And before the break there, we heard about the uh, wonderful football player Anne O'Brien and Helena Byrne, who is joining us, uh, the creator of Web Art archives at the British Library who wrote the entry on Anne O'Brien. But Terry, let's talk about some of these other dimensions. For example, the tensions between amateurism and professionalism. That seems to have been an undercurrent, uh, certainly in these, well, up until relatively recently. Yes, indeed. I suppose what we see in the late 19th century is you see an explosion of interest. Well, the British basically start codifying sports and there's an explosion of interest in these new in these new sports creates a market for it. Uh, I suppose money is coming into that market. There is a lot of gambling going on around sports. There is perhaps unease that sport is becoming less socially exclusive than it formerly was. So there's a kind of a reaction to the first advent of organized sports and professionalism and money coming into sports and the gambling surrounding sports. And this reaction kind of leads to a sort of idealization then of the amateur ideal of the old Corinthian ethic. We see that with the creation of the Olympic Games. We see that as well with Henry Dunlop, who's a important sports promoter in Dublin in the 1860s and 1870s. And he's involved in one of the clubs, the athletics clubs. They draw up rules that specifically exclude working men from participating in it. So there's sort of an undercurrent, well, even more than undercurrent of elitism and snobbery to the growth of the amateur ideal around sport. But I would say it's not purely about snobbery and it's some of the people that we see in this volume who are amateurs are from you know, relatively humble backgrounds. A lot of people buy into the amateur ideal without being snobs. And I think that, um, you know, we see the GAA, for example. Michael Cusack creates the GAA in a way because, again, he's disgusted with the social elitism of many of the athletics clubs in Dublin. So he creates the GAA as something that is available and open to the common man. There is a kind of a rider to that in the sense that you kind of have to buy into Irish nationalism as well. But that's another matter. Um but the creation of the GAA, I suppose, gives amateurism a shot in the arm in Ireland by making it more socially diverse. And, uh, you know, amateurism is very strong in the early 20th century and it sort of slowly begins to die out. But it, it's a long time dying out. And uh, we see that in some of the entries, you know, as late as the 1950s, Philomena Garvey, who was the best uh, amateur woman's amateur golfer in Ireland, uh, you know, for about 20 or 30 years in the middle of the 20th century, her job is she works in Cleary's, I think, and that job involves her selling golf equipment. So the Royal and Ancient Golf Club in St. Andrews um, launched uh, an investigation into her to see whether she can retain her amateur status. She's eventually cleared. But this is an idea of how seriously amateurism is taken. Uh, Kevin O'Flanagan, who is a very talented all-round sportsman from the 30s, 40s and 50s, um, he can play both rugby and soccer to an international level. Uh, he plays some games for Arsenal, in the late 40s uh, as an amateur. Probably could have made it, you know, as a regular for Arsenal uh, had he turned professional, but he didn't. But when he was with Arsenal, uh, he was very punctilious in claiming expenses and he refused to claim expenses uh, for food he would eat when he was training with Arsenal because he would say that um, he had to eat anyway. So that's a very stringent approach to claiming expenses, which I'm glad to say never took off. And then laterally, then we have Ken Goodall, 
um, the rugby player who you know defects from rugby you know, amateur rugby union uh, to join become a rugby league professional. And he is effectively ostracised by the rugby union authorities in Ireland when his career ends and he comes back to Ireland. He is uh, ostracised by a lot of his former teammates. They're, they're worried about being seen talking to him. Technically, he can't set foot in a rugby ground. I believe uh, Radio Ulster help him by hiring him as a sports commentator for club matches. That, so that, yeah, that comes yeah. later on, but he really yeah. was watching games through the fences. Yeah. And uh, that was all driven by his need to earn an income to support his young family, which is, yeah. he wasn't really the classic uh, middle-class, upper-middle-class, privately educated player. Um, he was working class, born in England, moved back to Derry when he was very young. And Goodall is absolutely fascinating because he also represents the evolution of that particular game as professionalism comes in slowly and over time. And as Terry touches on there, you know, the, the the duality between Michael Cusick and Henry Dunlop is absolutely fascinating. And James Quinn's entry on Cusick shows that he was playing cricket and rugby in advance of his own sort of transformative moment, moving away from the, the sort of Anglo-Irish social sporting scene where the college races and, and what, what the club that Henry Dunlop founded, the Irish Championship Athletic Club, was representing. And so that duality sort of runs through the book in a way, um, if you if you read the lives in a certain way. And that tension goes on because I think with, with, with many of the soccer players that are, are clustered in the mid-20th century, they're making a living, but not as we know soccer players to make a living today. That's very much a part of their life. And Kevin O'Flanagan was unusual a kind of an upper upper working class boy who went to Sing Street but he excelled and became a consultant and could pay his own way and, and, and uniquely picked up soccer and rugby caps alongside his brother uh, who also played for Lansdale Rugby Club and Bohemian Soccer Club which is a pretty small overlap uh, even to this day you know and Terry, that also then connects with what happens after they retire because there are mm-hmm. 60 fascinating lives in this mm-hmm. volume, but they're not all happy lives and they're not all happy lives after retirement and there's some real tragic stories uh, here as well. There are indeed. Um, I suppose I'm impressed actually just the diversity in people's experiences after they retire here. You know, there's the triumphant and there's the tragic, as you say, as well. I mean... Um, as Paul Rouse, actually Paul Rouse, I should say as well, writes an introductory essay to this book as well. And he's Ireland's foremost sports historian. He says the sporting life is not a normal thing. And very many of these people uh, retire in their early 30s. And some of them can live for decades. It's a struggle for them living outside the limelight. And there are some very tragic cases, um, you know, struggles with poverty, with depression, with alcoholism. That's a current theme through the whole book. Like Mabel Cahill, the tennis star who dominates US tennis for about four years. She dies in the poorhouse. Uh, Alex Higgins, great snooker star of the 1980s, who really built snooker as a popular sport in the 70s and 80s. Uh, he effectively dies in the poorhouse. So, you know, there are some very, very tragic stories. Uh, it's very difficult. Then we have other people who struggle but sort of survive, like George Best, famously serious uh, problem with alcoholism. But... I guess because he's so famous, he's able to sort of sell his stories to the media. He's able to stay afloat. Um, Nicky Rackard, the famed hurler, during his career, you know, he always struggled a little bit with alcohol. After he retires, he becomes a serious alcoholic, but he eventually does sober up and he, he writes a book about his experiences with alcohol and he becomes very active in Alcoholics Anonymous in terms of helping people. So, you know, but I do think that, you know, many other people then... Again, I suppose they fade into obscurity, but they don't suffer tragedy either. You know, they they either go back to their day jobs or they take up fairly humdrum day jobs. And they, yeah, very many of them kind of recede into obscurity. Uh, The most striking case is that of Beauchamp Day, who was a a leading professional runner in the 1900s. Very famous, played, uh, ran in front of huge crowds in England, Australia, South America, uh, South Africa, I mean, and America. And he effectively retires in 1910. He lives, I think, was until 1972, more or less. In we know very little about what he did. He think he lived in the north of England. He gets married a couple of times. We're not quite sure what job he did. He probably lived off his winnings for a while. Uh, and then you have other people, probably the people that are happiest, the sports people that do best, are those that remain involved in their sport in some way. And that can be in a fairly small way. You know, some of them, uh, a lot of the GA players remain involved as GA activists in a small way. There's nothing major, but you can see how, you know, the kind of the role sport plays as a kind of a social outlet for people, even after they retire. Philomena Garvey, who I mentioned earlier, the woman golfer, she remains, she, she actually dies after suffering a heart attack in the golf club that she was a member of all her life, Baltray in County Louth. Um, and then we get people who uh, are very successful. You know, they stay involved in their sports and they become even more successful in very many ways. Kevin Heffernan, 
who's an all-time great in Gaelic football full forward. Uh, he goes on to become probably, you know, well, no doubt about it, the most important coach in the history of Gaelic football. Jack Charlton, I suppose we all know about. He wins a World Cup as a player, but with England, he takes Ireland to a World Cup as a manager. Iris Kellis, who's a leading show jumper, and then she goes on to become just as successful as a trainer, both of riders and of horses. And then we have people that just move on and uh, become more successful in other fields. Most strikingly, Jack Kyle, again, legendary Irish rugby player, powers Ireland to the first Grand Slam that Ireland won in rugby in 1948. Um, regarded as probably one of the all-time great Irish rugby players. And he uh, pretty much becomes a surgeon, goes to live in Africa. And he made a point of saying he wanted to go to Africa because no one would know who he was there. And he wanted to sort of make his way uh, as a surgeon and not be known as Jack Kyle, the rugby player. So, you know, sport was just one chapter in his life. And I should also say, some people don't get to retire. That there's a few, you know, we have two people, um, Joey Dunlop, the motorcyclist, who uh, dies on the racetrack effectively. And Dave Gallagher, the legendary all but New Zealand rugby captain, who dies in World War One very soon after he retires. And uh, Joey Dunlop's garage and pub in uh, Ballymena is now a place of pilgrimage for Irish motorcycle fans. And that Dave Gallagher's uh, grave in France is also a place of pilgrimage for many New Zealanders and for touring New Zealand rugby teams. And Terry, it's interesting the way you mention George Best and Alex Hurricane Higgins. Mm. Uh, mm. Uh, it shows that the volume, you know, it's, it's not a political thing, it's a, but it's an All-Ireland thing because oh, yeah. the DIB going back looks at uh, lives of Irish figures uh, for the whole island. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, the Royal Irish Academy, of course, is an All-Ireland institution, so we take that very seriously. But also, I mean, Northern Ireland has a very rich sporting history. I'm particularly impressed with Northern Ireland as it was a sort of an early powerhouse of Irish soccer. It produced very many, up to about the 1950s, I think most of the best Irish soccer players tended to come from the north. It was a powerhouse of of rugby as well. Uh, historically, I think at least half the Irish team, Turlough, you probably noticed more than me, were from Ulster, I think. Yeah, there's a huge preponderance there and, and that's <clears> one of the facets of the book that we, we <clears> wanted to sort of get a, a range and spread, but we ended up actually Ulster is, is by far and away the best represented for rugby, very strongly for soccer, <clears> um, where Munster, not so strongly, but we have Moskeen there. Um, and, you know, as Terry says, the, the, the Academy is an All-Ireland body and, and, and especially in this volume, we very much wanted to sort of present the, the full gambit of, uh, of the Irish sporting experience in the widest sense. And Turlo, let's talk about the evolution of particular sporting codes because we do see sport changing and we do see the way sport is, is played changing. Absolutely. It's, what, it's one of the joys of this volume was, was learning about this, both through the specific lives and, and wanting to contextualise them for our readers. One of the great examples is Bill McCracken, who, who gained the great, uh, the great moniker offside because of his singular role in, in leading the soccer authorities to change that law in, I believe, 1925, when the number of players needed to play a forward onside was reduced from three to two. And that was down to his great uncanny ability to step up and, and create an offside line almost single-handedly, which in the, in the fine entry uh, actually leads to a huge influence on the game in Britain and the English leagues especially and reducing the goals per game average, leading the FA to change the rule. For me as a sort of rugby fan, reading about Dave Gallagher and later Ken Goodall, it's shown me that the game is constantly, perhaps more than many other field sport, constantly evolving. So how scrums formed about 120 years ago was often the first people to arrive formed the front row. And so the slower, larger players were in the back row. Um, now with Ken Goodall, I was fascinated to read about the number of lineouts per game. Could be well over 60, often approaching 80. You could kick out to touch at any point. And Goodall is truly interesting because he kind of goes under the radar of Irish rugby greats, but he was the first Irish player anointed world player of the year um, and, and he'd, he'd acquired 19 caps in little over three and a half years before switching codes the very fine entry on Molly Gale written by uh, Will Murphy is so interesting on, on a number of levels both the cultural and gender uh, and institutional politics of Camogie within the GAA family and also the evolution of that sport she was a player and later president and, and at one point they had a second bar in the Camogie uh, sticks, so to speak, which is absolutely fascinating to think about. And then the subtle differences that inflect that game to this day compared to hurling, which, uh, which I think don't get quite the attention uh, they, they, they deserve. Um, one of the wider examples that, that I learned about is the backgrounds and how these people often represent a story like... Terry touched them in the afterlife. We, we have, a, we have a, a butcher from Crumlin who became one of the, the finest uh, hockey players ever uh, who went to Loretto on the green um, 
And she had a fascinating prehistory in that she was one of the fastest sprinters in the British Isles. But because um, Irish authorities only sent five women, I believe, to the 1948 Olympic Games, four of them were artists and one was a fencer. She never got to compete at the highest level. Joan O'Reilly and sort of embraced hockey formally because of that restriction. I sometimes forget this. Um, looking for images, which was a part of the volume, you get to see what people are wearing, men and women, through this game. The only one who looks like a sportsman is actually Michael Cusick in his rugby gear. Uh, he could fill a, fr- a club front row to this day, but if you look at what they were playing, camogie in, tennis in, uh, soccer in, it really does subtly uh, change the character of it. These games are constantly changing and it's something I've learned a lot from in the last uh, kind of 24 months. You know? Well, we are talking about our sporting lives and indeed uh, the diversity of our sporting achievements and uh, different sports over the different centuries. We're going to take a quick break now. We'll be looking at some sports people playing different sports as well as some of the connections between nationalism and sport and draw some conclusions from this very fine volume. So stay with us here on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History as we look at our sporting lives. Tonight's show is inspired by the brilliant new publication from the Royal Irish Academy based on its Dictionary of Irish Biography project and it looks at 60 Irish men and women who achieved greatness or indeed had significant lives. Uh, the editors are joining me in studio, Turlo Reardon and Terry Clavin. We're also joined by Helena Byrne, who's the creator of Web Archives at the British Library and who wrote on the soccer player Anne O'Brien. Now, Helena, the wonderful thing about the DIB is that so many people have told me about how when they were asked, they were commissioned to write an entry, it re-energised them when it came to historical research or they found a new project or they suddenly found a a new passion for something related to what they were uh, researching and writing about. I think that's the case with you with Anne O'Brien because I think it started a real, a really exciting project about the connections between Ireland and Stad's Reims. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, I could have written a whole book on Anne with the amount of uh, information that I was coming across and she had such an interesting life as well. Um, But one thing that came up um, while I was writing the entry was um, the wider relationship between um, Stade de Reims and Ireland. So I'd come across an article in the Kilkenny People about a player who had been offered a contract to play with Stade de Reims in 1972. And I was like, oh, that's the year before Anne went over. I wonder how that came about. And then so I started looking, I got in touch with that player and started looking into the team. So it turns out the Jays team, so it was a factory-based team from the Jays Fluid Factory in Finglas, um, they had a soccer team and their manager, Pat Noon, was one of the key administrators in organising women's football in Ireland as well. He kind of set up the leagues, the initial leagues in 1971 after uh, when UEFA and the FAI started to recognise women's football officially. And he had made connections with the Stade de Reims manager and had organised a tour. So they travelled over to France in September 1972 and played four matches against Stade de Reims. The first match was in Reims and they played then in um, three other locations across northern France in the space of a week. So that was a lot of travelling back and forth. And <laughs> and they had a massive crowd um, at the home game in Reims because Reims were, Stade de Reims were a, a globe-trotting team. So they played in domestic football, but they also went on big tours around the world. So just in a few weeks in 1972, before they played against the Jays team, they um, were in, on tour in Indonesia for a month. They'd played in Spain for about a week before that match. And then um, after the Irish tour, then they uh, a team from Germany was coming over to play against them as well. And uh, and because of that tour, when the relationship started to develop, then that's why Weems came to Ireland in August 1973 for that tour. And the relationship was going really well, so well that um, Geoffrey, who was the manager of um, Stade Reims, was also the French national team manager as well. And he invited the Republic of Ireland to come to Paris to play an official international match against uh, France in Parc de Prince. And so that match took place on the 10th of October 1973. And it was before um, an under-21 um, men's match. So that they were playing in Parc de Prince. Um, that's the thing with women's football, especially in the early days, it's all about building relationships. So um, they kind of really are, they, even though they're recognised by the men's governing bodies, they don't really have the support from them. So any matches, international matches or club matches that they arrange with um, overseas opposition, they need to develop those personal relationships themselves. So this really helped. Um, and so that's why Ireland, that was Ireland's third official Republic of Ireland's third official international match was against France because of this relationship built between the clubs. 
um, Jays and Sad Dareem. And it's the 50th anniversary of that uh, uh, tour, uh, the tour that took place in August 1973. So I know there's a lot of interest about doing stuff to market uh, this August. Yeah, so in um, August last year, we did organise a reunion for the Jays team. So we're hoping we could do something similar for all that took part in that uh, tour as well. Because uh, I know there's a lot of interest in it and uh, it'd be great to have something happen to just a mark because it was such a landmark moment in women's football history. It's one of the standout events that happened. So hopefully we can have an anniversary for it. And uh, so that's the thing with this research. It's really, it's about also the way that the clubs developed uh, their relationships. It's the same with the research as well. So you sometimes have to go to uh, people outside of Ireland to find out information about these tours. Uh, and the historical events. So um, in the Republic of Ireland, there's no official archive to consult for women's football. There is in Northern Ireland, they have in the Public Records Office in Northern Ireland, they have a NIWFA archive. And in England, there's the Women's Football Association archive at the British Library. And they they also have papers in the National Football Museum there. And then in the Scottish Football Museum, they have um, archive materials around women's football. And in Wales, they're just in the process of opening up a football museum as well, which will have information about the Welsh women's. Because there's so much crossover between the Irish Republic of Ireland clubs and the national team with these countries. Uh, We can kind of piece together some of the Republic of Ireland history through consulting these archives. But it's the same at Reims as well. So there's one of the players from Stade de Reims. Uh, you'll have to forgive my French pronunciation, but Jelaine uh, uh, Souf Royer. She was one of the. She was the goalkeeper, the main goalkeeper at the time, 1972-73, and she has an amazing scrapbook. And so I was able to get a copy of anything related to Ireland from her scrapbook. And uh, through that, I was able to see verify who was the first the first match against Wales. She had a newspaper clipping of a colour photograph of the team. And uh, since meeting more players, I've come across another copy of that. It was in the Sunday World. And um, then, uh, you know, so some of these resources you get from, uh, you know, it's interesting how I got some more key Irish history information from a scrapbook of a French player. Uh, And she also had a lot of newspaper clippings related to Anna Bryan. And she even had um, the newspaper clipping that had the debut for Anne's uh, first match with Reims, which was um, published in the Reims paper La Union, um, on the 11th of May. And uh, newspaper articles from the Union, they're quite interesting because sometimes they're not very complementary in the, some of the language that they use to describe the Irish players or the Irish teams, especially the 1972 tour. Um, but then they are as well. So it's a bit of a um, mix. So they did say, so they have an actual photograph of uh, Anne from the match. And it says, although in poor shape, and then in brackets, like most rim Remotes is, is the kind of a term for the team players. Anna Bryan showed great technical qualities. So in that one sentence, they're insulting her, but they're also complimenting her. And <laughs> they did also go on to say that she demonstrated an undeniable technique and an excellent sense of collective game. She scored a goal and several of her shots either narrowly missed or forced the keeper, Lanson, to make um, hard saves. The latter made a mistake causing the second goal before redeeming herself on numerous occasions. So they're quite critical of the women and Anne in particular, but also complimentary of her style. So through those newspaper clippings, I also found out that at the international match in Paris in October 1973, there was cameras crew there. So I investigated through um, the ENA, which is the equivalent of the Irish Film Institute in Paris, and uh, they actually have some footage of that match. And they have a two-minute clip that they've released through their media archive. And um, and through that, we're able to identify a lot of the Irish international players who haven't been, the full team lineup hasn't been recorded before because any English newspaper only really talked about Anna Bryan. So um, the actual lineup for that match has never been recorded. So through uh, these clips, we're able to identify who the players were. Turlow, uh, we have some examples in, in world sports of people who excel in one and then uh, go on and, 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 and find that they can also do very well in another one, uh, uh, sometimes with great success, sometimes perhaps not so uh, great success. But uh, I was fascinated to see uh, Irish sporting icons and sporting figures also uh, doing the same and playing many sports. That's it. And, and this was something that was a little bit more frequent, if not common, maybe in the earlier parts of the last century. So uh, Kevin O'Flanagan is truly fascinating. He was a fine a Gaelic football player, you know, captained his team to an All-Ireland schoolboys title um, and then was a very, very good sprinter and long jumper, um, but really excelled at soccer. 
and uh, and also rugby, which he fitted around his medical studies for for well over a decade and a half, um, and went on to be a sports administrator. But very interestingly, like a lot of ball sports players, he was quite handy on the golf course as well. And this he shares with Joan O'Reilly. I mean, she went on after a glittering career to become a leading umpire and sports administrator in the in the in the realm of hockey. She was a really uh, really good uh, golfer, um, and and. One of the one of the best examples in the book, which inflects what Terry was talking about, is Moss Keane. Moss Keane was playing uh, Gaelic for 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 Kerry Gaelic football, but he, he he first started to play rugby almost as a a response to his um, distinctive sort of physical stature, which was better suited to rugby, as was pointed out to him. And, and he came from Castle Island in Kerry, which had a storied rugby uh, tradition. And just before the GAA ban was lifted, he was uh, he was playing for UCC Seconds as Moss Fenton. And, and and in many ways set a course that many more Munster and Irish rugby players have followed, which is, you know, playing uh, Gaelic, Gaelic football mostly or, or a little bit of soccer uh, and then bringing those skills to, to, to other games, just like today, modern Gaelic football has been hugely influenced by basketball. Um, so again, as I touched on earlier, I'm, I've learned so much from doing this in that you see all these kind of cross currents. You touched on the amount of lives in the wider dictionary of Irish biography. Well over 500 were, were, were sporting in many ways. And there was a there was a preponderance of lives that that sort of did five or six sports because there was so few people participating internationally in the early decades that they might uh, pick up a, a medal here, a, a rugby cap here, and also be a leading croquet player or whatever else. So there was whittling it down. But it it is um it is something to look at when you when you think of the Irish sporting experience, particularly politically and socially in the last hundred years. Most people were playing many sports. Again, Joan O'Reilly was an excellent camogie player, but was sort of put off that by the, the Catholic churches and the camogie organisation's disdain for hockey, which comes up again in the Molly Gill article. So Molly Gill was a very open, progressive, anti-ban um, proponent in camogie, but the, she, she and her kind of fellow travellers lost out for, for the forces who wanted to bring in the, the cultural ban against the foreign games. So in rural areas, there was very little overlap between camogie and hockey. But in urban areas, uh, they were competing, if you will. And to this day, the Loretta Order was always supportive of hockey, as much for class reasons, while many other um, female religious orders and congregations who educated young young girls were completely opposed to it. So there's all these little reasons why people play sports and how. But what I see in the round is many of them just want to play sport, you know, and and, and they, they excel at, at certain ones or one or two of them. Um, and, and, and that's sort of the joy of it, you know. Terry, it's a perfect book for anyone interested in sport, but it's also a fascinating book for anyone interested in the story of Irish nationalism because you definitely see mm-hmm. interconnections and uh, mm-hmm. and interesting insights uh, from these lives. Oh, certainly, yeah, and it's you know it deals with the relationship between sport and nationalism. I suppose, in a sense, sport and nationalism they fit each other hand in glove. Uh, sport appeals to our you know tribal loyalties, and nationalism feeds off that. Um, we can see. You know, from the earliest entry on Dan Donnelly, uh, his career benefits from the fact he's fighting English boxers and there's huge interest in his fights for nationalistic reasons, basically. And uh, you see that recur again and again, that nationalist sentiment drives interest in sport. And conversely, then sport is good for nationalism. Uh, Pat O'Callaghan is the first uh, Irish athlete to win an Olympic gold medal representing an independent Irish state. He does so in 1928, you know, and he says... This victory shows that we have a flag and that we have a nationality. So, you know, it's it's, it's kind of a, a mar- you know, they're very good for each other. To, but to a point, they're not quite, they're not quite the same thing. And you can see that in Pat O'Callaghan's life, that, you know, nationalism can sometimes disrupt sporting activity. Uh, not, Pat O'Callaghan wins two gold medals in 1928 in the hammer throw. In 1928 and 1932, he misses out on a chance for a third gold medal in 1936. Uh, when he would have been favourite for a third gold, he misses out because the Irish um, Athletics Federation is in dispute with the Olympics Federation because the Olympics Federation uh, acknowledges the partition of Ireland. So there's a there's a boycott that Pat O'Callaghan goes along with because he's he's a fairly strong Irish nationalist himself. So that's an example of how nationalism can disrupt sporting activity. Uh, Turlough, you were talking about the GA ban. I mean, in a way, the GA the classic example of the marriage between sport and nationalism. And the GAA certainly, I guess in its early days, it got a lot of people into sport. People joined the GAA for nationalistic reasons, for political reasons. And you can see that in the early entries. Um, who do we have? The, the earliest GAA entries are uh, Dick Fitzgerald, Gaelic footballer, Sim Walton, the hurler, and Molly Gill, 
uh, who you mentioned earlier, Tarlow, the camogie player, and they're all involved in kind of the IRA or coming them on to a greater or lesser um, extent. And uh, but but so these people, perhaps particularly, you can see with the case of Molly Gill that she was probably an Irish nationalist. She was very involved in Irish cultural nationalist activities through the Kula Press, where she worked as a printer, and she probably joined began playing camogie as an extension of that. But you can see in her career that the love of sport does take over to an extent because she because she opposes the introduction of the ban, which you would think as a fairly fervent Irish nationalist. She's um, she's actually arrested during the Civil War, so she's a fairly staunch Republican. So you would imagine she would support the ban, uh, but she doesn't because she knows that, uh, you know, I suppose... The sporting politics, sporting politics, takes over to an extent as well, but also a love, a love of sport in and of itself begins to take over. So I would say that the relationship between sport and nationalism, it's complicated and it operates in two ways, and it can be beneficial. It can be sport can sometimes transcend nationalism, as we see with the rugby team, with Jack Kyle, where he was quite idealistic at times, wasn't he, about how the Irish rugby team represented the entire island. Yeah, and, and he, he famously wrote a letter to the Irish Times in the 60s, really taking on Ian Paisley and that, that form of unionism, which was quite a brave move for someone of, of his background. You know, he stood apart mm. from it. Um, mm. and, and, and what's really interesting, sorry to cut across you, Terry, is the relationship between the soccer organisations because Kevin O'Flanagan and many other of these players played for both the Northern Ireland IFA and the Republic of Ireland FAI. And and I'm, I just find that intriguing and I know James Quinn's working on that because there's almost a pragmatism there that didn't exist in the other codes because soccer yeah. traversed yeah. all. You know. And a final question. There are portrait images for all of the entries. How difficult was it to find it for some of the, the, the older entries? Because uh, it, that seems to have been a great undertaking. Yeah, look, looking back, it was a real joy and we can smile now. But a lot of work went in around the background of, of, of developing the text, especially through the pandemic. We reached out, uh, you know, Terry worked on archives in, in, in North America uh, New Zealand and even chasing down family members in Dublin and, and, and trying to verify images. Yeah, some family members and some various museums and libraries were yeah, very, were very, so gener- very generous. Very generous. Kind yeah. with their time, yeah. you know, yeah. amazing support. Yeah. yeah, and an absolutely brilliant uh, introductory essay by the wonderful yes. Professor Paul Rice and he ties it all together uh, so superbly. So uh, a wonderful new volume, Irish Sporting Lives, published in paperback by the Royal Irish Academy, part of uh, that brilliant uh, Dictionary of Irish Biography series, edited by Turley O'Reardon and Terry Clavin and so delighted that Turlow and Terry could join me tonight and also Helena Byrne the creator of Web Archives at the British Library and she did an absolutely fantastic entry on the soccer player Anne O'Brien who definitely deserves to be better known and indeed to be celebrated well that does bring us to the end of another edition of Talking History my thanks to my brilliant panel also my thanks to my producer Marais O'Sullivan and Peter Malloy on sound we've got more debate and discussion next week so hope you can join us then we've been Talking History Good night.